Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1541, conquistador Gonzalo Pizarro and his lieutenant Francisco Orellana set off from Quito, Ecuador in search of La Canela, the rumored land of cinnamon to the east and for the mythical tribal chief called El Dorado. It turned out to be one of the greatest adventures of discovery in history. In his latest book, his ninth Buddy Levy relates how Oriana became the first European to navigate and explore the entire length of the world's largest river from source to sea. The book, River of Darkness, Francisco Oriana and the Deadly First Voyage Through the Amazon, is published by Diversion Books and brings Buddy Levy to our show now. Welcome. Hey, Leonard. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a fascinating story. Was, but wasn't this book originally published in 2011? Has new information about the expedition come to light? Newly uncovered details? Uh, well, that's true. And, uh, I, you know, it came out in 2011. I, I went down and did my research trip um, in 2008. And I would say that um, it partly... Um, the book had never been released in paperback, and so um, we wanted to offer it to a new audience. And also, um, I think my relationship with the Amazon uh, changed over the last decade or 11, 12 years since I originally wrote the book. And that was partly what prompted um, the re-release, um, because I've been thinking a lot more than I was then um, about what's been happening in the Amazon. Yeah, well, actually, we'll get to that as well, the, because the, the last decade or so has really been had seen extraordinary changes. Uh, but you had uh, written an earlier book, Hernan Cortez, Conquistador in 2008, that dealt with the Spanish campaign against Montezuma and the Aztec em Empire in Mexico. So are you just um, uh, looking at conquistadors? Well, that's a great question. Um, I was. I seem to work in um, in pairs and threes. So um, when I wrote um, Conquistador, um, you know, which chronicles this fateful meeting between um, the Spaniard, Spanish conquistadors and, and Montezuma, the emperor, um, I was I, I actually ended up bumping into this story. Um, about Oriana and the Pizarros during my research, at the tail end of my research. Even and though this is about uh, the conquest of Peru in 1530, what happened after that? Right. So, you know, it was something of an extension because I, I came to understand that one of um, Cortez's captains, uh, a fellow by the name of um, Diego Ordaz, he ended up continuing on after the conquest of the Aztecs, and he went... Uh, with the Pizarros um, to South America and ultimately tried to make a foray up the Orinoco River. And so I had sort of filed that away, like, wow, this is an interesting story. And I, I knew some folks that had traveled to the Amazon and I was intrigued by it, but I was so um, still in the throes of, of finishing up my work on um, Cortez, the, the book Conquistador, which, you know, it took a few three years to, to write. Um, but then, um, I had, I had filed this story away. Um, and there are some definite connections of course, in, in the Spanish empire expansion, because the, the Pizarros were, you know, a, 
decade or so, a little more later. And so it was just a continued thirst for gold that kept this empire expansion fueled for, for quite a while. Well, Francisco Pizarro led the conquest of the Incan Empire. How many members of the Pizarro family were conquistadors? Were they trained soldiers? Yeah, quite a few. In fact, there's um, there were five brothers and half-brothers. Um, Some illegitimate and, sons. Right, right, including um, Francisco, Hernando, uh, Gonzalo, Martin, and, you know, these— gentlemen all went to South America and were part in certain ways were, were part of the conquest of Peru. And after, uh, after that happened in 1532, um, you know, which was a, a brutal slaughter and, and uh, you know, and, and uh, a brutal slaughter and capture, um, not unlike the, the slaughters and captures that were uh, perpetrated by Cortez uh, of Montezuma, um, a kind of similar approach, actually, where um, the leader is taken captive and then ultimately, um, you know, slain. And um, but uh, then the, the quest kept going. And so some of the brothers, including um, Francisco Pizarro's young, youngest brother, Gonzalo, um, decided to take it upon himself to, uh, under the aegis uh, of Francisco, to um, to go on this quest for, as you mentioned in the intro, gold and cinnamon, um, which, you Which know, is really was, spice or was cinnamon specific? Well, they had heard that over the Andes from Quito, over the cloud mountains, and the, um, there, there were these great stands of cinnamon. And of course, the Europeans had developed a taste for spices and cinnamon um, in particular. And so that was one of the enticements was that if there happened to be cinnamon, all the better. But I think if you, if you, uh, there's a chapter um, early on in the book about this, um, where they, all these conquistadors who have gone on different forays north of Colombia and into Venezuela. Um, and they keep coming across um, peoples who have finally wrought gold in. And of course, that gold frenzy had been started by Cortez and he has brought back to um, Spain in ships all of these, uh, you know, elaborate golden well, including giant golden wheels, but the um, when when you end up in uh, where the Oriana and um, Pizarro and uh, are hanging out um, near Quito, they start to realize that there's a lot of gold showing up, and it's intricate. Some of it's in jewelry, and so that peaks a further interest. That look, maybe there's another empire on the order of the Aztec empire um, that we can go and find but, and conquer and, and um, you know. But although the mouth of the Amazon had been discovered in 1500 by the former captain of Columbus's Nina, no European yeah. had traveled the river. Now, in this book, well, you tell the story I, I, of what happened when Francisco appointed Gonzalo, his half-brother, vice governor of Quito in November of 1530, and then— later ordered him to explore 
the uh, the area east of Quito with his lieutenant Francisco Oriana in search of the, the spice, um, the cinnamon and gold. Yes, that's true. Um, the, though the mouth of the um, Amazon that was um, discovered and 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 uh, sailed upward a little bit um, is thousands of miles away from the headwaters that uh, Oriana and Pizarro head down. So no one really has any idea of the scale and scope and length uh, between uh, the headwaters and and the mouth you know, a, a continent away. And so that's what's kind of interesting. There's this huge gap, blank space in the middle that the Europeans have no idea about and what's how, there. And how many countries does it go through these days? Well, Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, mm-hmm. primarily. But, but mostly Brazil. You know, that's, that's in, a, in a relatively straight west to east line um you know if you've count if you start counting the some 500 tributaries that ultimately feed the amazon basin it, you know it includes uh colombia and venezuela and um and chile and so it's it's quite massive but no, no one uh at least not the europeans knew the extent or scope um of it at that time no gonzalo is often described as brutal was he? And in what ways? And was he any more brutal than the other conquistadors? Well, that's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I end up uh, referring to uh, Oriana in certain ways as a, a kinder, gentler conquistador, if there is such a thing. Well, he was younger, right? He was uh, the royal cousin of the Pizarro, but just 30 years old at the time. Yeah, right. Well, so as far as Gonzalo, his his tactics were um, were brutal in the sense that uh, as they began moving over uh, the Andes at the very beginning of the trip and when they they first ran into uh, indigenous populations. So there was a language barrier, of course, and uh, he was trying to find gold. So he would he would show them gold, uh, you know, capture indigenous people, show them gold, and and then literally um, hold them to the fire and burn their feet until they pointed a direction that he wanted to hear. um, And and then they would burn them alive. So, I mean, yeah, he was absolutely um, brutal. And and I differentiate him from Oriana because um, Oriana ultimately, as we'll see as we get chatting, took a different approach um, for a number of reasons. But his his approach was less um, about torture and more about trying to learn to communicate. Uh, And I think he um, shown himself to be um, to have a kind of conscience about it. Some of it was self-preservation because he was he realized eventually that he was outnumbered. But from the beginning, he he diverged from Gonzalo Pizarro's approach of, of sort of, um, you know, scorch and burn and, and just um, and, and kill. And dehumanizing, in effect. Absolutely dehumanizing. So they met at the Valley of Zumaco in March and began their march across the Andes accompanied by 200 soldiers and horses, thousands of swine for food, llamas, hunting dogs, 
4,000 enslaved Indian slave porters. Why such a large group? Well, you know, this is what's really interesting to me as a as a follow up to the um, conquistador approaches that preceded this one. Um, you know, Cortez had learned that um, conscripting native bearers, uh, women for making food and using as sex slaves and for you know portaging all of their equipment worked really well um, in. in in the Valley of Mexico and in the lead up to heading over the mountains into the Valley of Mexico. But the terrain was much different. And so I think that um, Pizarro made some tactical mistakes. Part of it was through ignorance. But, you know, you have this massive retinue, as you describe, and it's really remarkable to try to think of this, you know, heading out from Quito and starting over these mountains with thousands of porters, you know, hundreds of horses, 4,000 swine that they're going to use for food. And if you've been to um, the region heading up over the mountains of Quito um, and into the pass of Papayacta, I mean, it, it worked pretty well at the beginning because that section of the country is is more um, flinty and a bit arid and the horses have footing um, and you're able to move up zigzagging um, trails. But what they didn't anticipate is what is what they couldn't have known was the different terrain they were going to encounter once they reached the mouth of these rivers where it becomes much more humid and boggy and thickly flooded forest. And so I think that it was not, it was partly just um, a misunderstanding about what lay ahead, uh, which they learned relatively quickly. Um, they had to make some adjustments, let's say. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Buddy Levy, whose latest book is River of Darkness, Francisco Oriana and the Deadly First Voyage Through the Amazon, which is published by Diversion Books. Um, you, uh, after they followed the courses of the, the Coca and Napo rivers, the expedition started running out of provisions and um, hadn't a, a fair number of the people who were in this huge uh, retinue died? Yeah, well, things um, started poorly and got worse. Let's put it that way. So one of the things that they one of the mistakes Pizarro and uh, Oriana made was that, you know, they they left Quito with these um, indigenous bearers, a.k.a. slaves, um, and they weren't very well suited. They weren't very well equipped um, with clothing. And so as they as they get up to the pass, which is about 14,000 feet, mm-hmm. you know, it's really cold. And so many of these bears are beginning to develop hypothermia. They're no longer able to function. Some of them are um, actually just retreating. Um, and Pizarro, uh, you know, he had about 220 or so soldiers. So it's not like they could um, keep that, you know, keep complete order. So there's a bit of um, dissension the bears are you know perishing and then they're also starting to realize that um they're they're have their their food sources are dwindling as they descend uh and as the 
terrain becomes boggier and the horses start to struggle. And so um, not, not only that, um, they had started at different times. So um, Pizarro went first and then he had um, told Oriana to meet them, which that meeting actually occurred somewhat remarkable given that they don't really know where they're going. Um, but yeah, by the time they end up starting uh, to preparing to start down the river, um, things are already a little bit um, disorganized. Had they already been meeting local peoples? Yeah, they did. And that's when they, they, they first just realized that the land of cinnamon wasn't what they had hoped it would be. So they did find stands of cinnamon trees, but they were small and scrubby and uh, so far removed from um, a civic center like Quito uh, that they weren't going, it wasn't going to be a, a, a spice that they could uh, harvest and make and, and use uh, on a commercial basis. And so at that point they had, they decided, well, that it's gold then, you know, um, it's gotta be gold. And, you know, Francisco Pizarro had, had ascertained uh, through discovery that there was this massive Inca road heading all the way from, um, you know, near Quito all the way down the Andes to Chile, a few thousand miles, um, that, there was a lot of gold. And so after torturing slash interviewing um, some of the people they were coming into contact with, they learned that there may, that there was this um, so-called El Dorado or Golden Man somewhere down the river. Um, it was all very vague, but at this point, the conquistadors were willing to, uh, <laughs> you know, believe pretty much anything they heard. And I think in many cases, the, the tortured um, natives were telling them anything they wanted to hear. Well, and so that, that just sent, that just sent them um, on this frenzy to try and find this golden man. Well, weren't some of those people peaceful and welcoming, uh, offering the, the group sustenance and life-saving guidance, while others were quite hostile? Uh, how, is it was just simply one tribe was one way and another tribe was another? Cultures varied? Yeah, that's true. And, and it was really, it seems to, that, the, um, that at the beginning, um, earlier on in in the upper reaches of the basin, um, the tribes they encountered were more accommodating. Um, in fact, some of them allowed um, Oriana and Pizarro to stay near their village and actually fed them um, and allowed them to work on this boat that they were going to build um, for nearly a month. And so, yeah, and they, and they weren't, uh, they were not attacking them. Um, now that changed the further they got down the river. Um, and that also changed, um, after it might've been connected to the fact that there's a split that we can talk about where Pizarro and, and, uh, Oriana split, but the initial troops that, um, when they were together, Oriana and, um, Pizarro, they were larger and probably a bit more intimidating, which might have resulted in um, less animosity. When Once Oriana is floating down the river with a smaller group of just 57 men at the beginning, they, they probably seemed more vulnerable. 
Um, so yeah, that's true. Like the, the, the peoples that they encountered, and this is a, you got to remind ourselves, this is a, quite a vast region. They, they differed um, in their, in their approach to visitors and interlopers and they hadn't seen any, you know, so it was, there's some kind of fascination at certain points with who are these people floating down our river. What about the, uh, their, the fascination of the, uh, the Spaniards with the local women. Well, absolutely. And, you know, they, um, and again, I would say that uh, this is a a really different approach. Um, Oriana, he did a couple of things that were quite unique. I mean, if you remember back when Cortez um, conquered the Aztec, he had the benefit of a slave girl that he, inherited um, or was gifted, who became an interpreter. And Oriana was quite aware of that. And so I think he understood that the, how language was going to help him. So there are there's evidence that he actually began um, early on with his um, friar and Scribner um, Carvajal to create a kind of working dictionary. And so everyone he was encountering, he was trying to learn as much um, local indigenous language that he could. And he he drafted these dictionaries so that he could try to communicate um, and express that he came peacefully, was trying to descend this river um, and find out as much as he could uh, versus just arriving in any village that he came to, landing and then beginning to um, make battle, So, which I thought was a really, you know, it probably saved all of their lives or mo- most of their lives, some perished. So Pizarro thought that uh, it would be best for them to split up for survival and, uh, and for Ariana to take the boat to up the river, get some food and things and bring it back. Well, right. So they at around Christmas in in 1541, they've been they've been out since um, oh February or no, they've been out for months and months. And um, they reach a point where they're in very difficult shape. They've eaten many of their horses, all the swine. Um, they are bogged down and they have they decide to build a boat. And they've heard from some locals that there are these. Um, large manioc plantations, it's kind of a, a you know a tuber um, downstream some distance. Um, it's pretty vague. And it's actually Oriana's idea to take this boat they built the San and, Pedro. Right, the San Pedro and and move and go downstream, try to find these manioc plantations and then bring the food back because these men are um, somewhat in rags at this point there. It's sweltering. Um, they also I have to re- recall that as they went over the, the mountains initially, um, they encountered a, a an active volcano that was erupting, uh, and as well as earthquakes that um, nearly, you know, destroyed some of these um, makeshift houses, and forts that they were living in, and so the men are rattled. They are uh, going through a thick forest as well, really thick. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really dense and thick and filled with. Now they've reached 
reach jungle and it's dense and thick and filled with all sorts of um, insects and, you know, alligators, caiman, um, you know, anacondas. And so they're they're out of their element for sure. And so and they're starving. So he sends Oriana. He agrees to let Oriana go downstream. Um, but again, this and he is was going to follow illus- on foot and they would meet a little further down. Right. 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 But um there's an underestimation of the power of the river, which is usually the case here, and also the ability to move upstream. So what ends up happening is that Oriana um, takes this group, 57 men, and begins downstream the and learns Mount after. River. Pardon me? On the Napo River, which uh, then meets the Amazon. Correct. Um, the... the uh, they learn pretty quickly that the river's power is immense. And so after a few days, um, Oriana starts to worry that he's not going to be able to get back. And they do ultimately find the some um, villages that are harvesting manioc. Um, but Oriana is not going to be able to make it back upstream. It becomes evident very quickly that um, there's no way that they, I mean, he thinks about whether to, you know, tie the boat up and walk along the shore uh, and try and pull it. There's no way to to row it upstream. Um, But so at, at that point, he realizes that they're now just on a pure voyage of discovery and whatever happens to Pizarro is He'll, he'll have to learn about it later. There's no going back. So did Gonzalo Pizarro, uh, when did he come to the realization that the expedition might be a total failure and decide to, to go back north to Quito with uh, well, the remaining made, men? Right. So he they had sat upon it 12 days, sort of pretty arbitrary, but um, after 12 days, Oriana does not return. And at this point, you know, Gonzalo Pizarro is a fiery, um, you know, really violent man. And he he vows that, um, you know, Oriana is a traitor. And then if he ever sees him again, he's going to, you know, pay, run him through with his Toledo sword. Um, but so he begins this uh, hellacious trek um, back to uh, what's called a march, you know, a march, but a, a trek back to Quito, even though he doesn't really know exactly where he is. And it ends up being, uh, you know, hundreds of miles from from March um, 1541 to June um, 1542, um, literally on foot most of the time. They, they ultimately, I think after Pizarro or after Oriana left, he had, um, you know, a few dozen maybe maybe even 80 horses left but they have to eat them and then it's just a death slog through this humid rainforest and along the rivers um for months and months and then when he returned to quito gonzalo learned that despite his many successes including the founding of the city of lima in 1535 francisco had been assassinated yeah, so... What, hey, Francisco was his protector to some degree, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, and he and Francisco had the most power of all of the... Well, so there's a kind of um, 
civil war going on uh, among the, the Spaniards who are trying to um, take control of the entire region. And there are these different factions. There's the Almagro faction and the Pizarro faction. And it's a tenuous um the Almagro faction had been sort of in control of further south in Chile. And, um, the, you know, what's, what's fascinating to me is that all of this is going on it, similarly, similarly to what was happening when Cortez was in the process of trying to take over, um, you know, central Mexico all the way down to Guatemala, that, that the information took so long to get back to the crown, to Charles V, that um, people just did these conquistadors pretty much did what they wanted um, and sort of worried about explaining it later. It, you know, if they could uh, get these large swaths of, of land and, and control people, um, it was just a, essentially a land and gold grab. And, and so Pizarro ends up um, being overtaken by this Almagro faction um, and, and assassinated in, in 1541, just, you know, right before uh, Gonzalo Pizarro arrives back to Quito in rags, by the way, I love this image of him coming back to the city, leading this barefoot group with just a sword in one hand and his staff in the other. And they're essentially barefoot and, um, and, you know, coming apart at the seams. Uh, at which point he decides he's going to sort of take the mantle for um, his brother, Francisco. Uh, and, and again, vows that if he ever sees Oriana, he's going to kill him. But now he's got his own problems because he's trying to he's trying to rule um, Lima and he's got um, this other faction to contend with. Meanwhile, um, meanwhile, Oriana is uh, on the Amazon. Did he decide to go all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, which was 2,500 miles away? I mean, would well, he even he, have I mean, known? He, he didn't, yeah. So what, what I love about writing this is that I toggle back and forth between what's going on with Gonzalo Pizarro and his group, though I'm more concerned uh, ultimately with this expedition. Um, and so, because it had never happened before. So he doesn't know, uh, Oriana doesn't really know where he's going. Now he's just, um, he's got this boat, uh, no horses anymore, uh, essentially no food. And and he's just floating at the whim of this really powerful river, which keeps getting bigger as these massive tributaries join it as he descends. And so, yeah, he's just trying to figure out how to survive primarily and with a with a, a vague understanding that somewhere east um, it's going to reach the Atlantic, though he doesn't have any idea how far it is or how long it's going to take him. And uh, did Spain ultimately claim the entire river as its own? Well, they tried. Um, you know, it it, um, it it ended up being a, a grab that continued for a couple of hundred years, really, because there were um, there were other factions coming in later. I mean, um, you know, this set off uh, a whole. Once Oriana gets through, and we can backtrack a bit, but um, there were there were contesting factions from all sorts of. I mean. Um, you know, Sir, Sir Walter Raleigh ultimately tried to come uh, and, and claim 
the older the El Dorado myth kept going for over a hundred years. Um, but yeah, there were uh, there were for a time Spain had most of the claims of the entire continent. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Buddy Levy. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Power of Darkness Francisco Oriana and the Deadly First Voyage Through the Amazon. Uh, you can do it by just going online to give to WBAI.org. That's given and then the number to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we will be happy to send you a copy. Again, 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And, and thank you very much. Now, why is the Amazon called the River of Darkness? <laughs> well, um, that's interesting. I had, I had so many choices um, that, for the title. But, um, you know, I think I look at it as a kind of... Um, on one level, a sort of metaphor um, because of the darkness that um, the Spaniards perpetrated on it. Um, but also, um, I did about a three-week journey myself down the um, river as part of my research. One of the things I love to do is to go to the places that I'm going to write about and spend um, three weeks to a month, if I can, or, or more, um, really immersing myself in the in the flora and fauna to try to get a sense of what it was like. You know, there's some suspension of disbelief there, but a sense of what it was like some hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So, so you're the replicating the experiences of the people that you're writing about as much as you can. I, I try to do it every time. Yeah. Um, so um, when I was, I, I actually took a trip a very small trip. I mean, only there were only five of us, and we, um, with a guide, we we went from the Coca River down through the Yasuni National Park um, and floated in a dugout canoe, um, forty foot long dugout canoe, sleeping in the in the flooded rainforest um, for three weeks. And and so the darkness element of it, I think, is is speaks to the unknown because when you're when you're hanging in a hammock in a flooded rainforest with um, you know, spiders the size of your fist and uh, ants crawling are all around and caiman and um, you know rodents the size of dogs, uh, it's so thick and dense that um, it seems like this dark, foreboding, impenetrable place. But for the people who live there, um, you know, there's life to be had everywhere. There's food to be had everywhere. And so um, it's a bit of a, I guess it has a double entendre in a way. Um, I really found my experience traveling in, 
you know, down the river and then sleeping in the rainforest. Um, one of the most um, exciting, informative um, travel experiences I've ever had, and I've had a lot of them. Well, I was uh, considering the the power of the river. I would have thought it would be slightly scary to go uh, on the Amazon in a dugout canoe. <laughs> Well, it, it is, especially, too, when you're um, we, we were fishing for piranha a few times and then my guides were, were like, hey, it was it was getting really hot. And they said, let's go swimming. And I'm thinking, well, mm-hmm. we're swimming in the water where we were just catching piranha, <laughs> which seemed like a bad idea. But, you know, they, they really like blood. So unless you're bleeding, mm-hmm. the piranhas will leave you alone. Um, but, you know, one it's very um the, the sounds to me um, were, were some of the most haunting and and moving. I mean, the sounds of howler monkeys, for example, which have this guttural lion-like roar. Um, and then there's and so many insects that, you know, are not even named, but have the, the whirring and churring at night. Um, it, it can be both unnerving and soothing also. And then there, of course, there are vampire bats, which... Uh, <laughs> like to light on you when you're sleeping and then, um, you know, chew little holes in your head and lick the blood. Um, so, you know, it, it's a little unnerving, just like any other foreign place that you go. Um, but once you um, get into a rhythm, um, and I must say, we, we also got to sleep uh, and stay with um, villagers along the way. Um, who were incredibly accommodating. And you get to see uh, what it's like to be, you know, living in stilted huts where, you know, a few months later, the, the flood is going to bring the water right up to the doorstep of the hut, but they're, they're elevated by like 20 to 25 foot um, posts. And so it was really fascinating. And I think it helped ultimately, I mean, I know it helped the, um, the writing and the storytelling to have been there for sure. Yeah, I was going to mention that uh, I was. I imagine that the, your experience is a lot less scary than Ariana's because the people are all friendly now. They've all seen uh, foreigners, uh, and a lot of the land has been cleared for air agriculture. Yeah, well, that's a um, double-edged sword too, because I mean, you know, one of the things that really struck me was when I when I finished my journey. Um, and I ended up, and this is a sidebar note, cause I think it's fascinating. I ended up staying in this place in Iquitos, Peru called La Casa Fitzcarraldo, which, um, is the home, uh, of a, a guy named, um, well, he, 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 uh, this man, I, I'm, I'm spacing on his name right now, but he used it as the base for filming for Werner Herzog's movies, mm-hmm. um, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and and Fitzcarraldo. Mm-hmm. His name is um, Walter Saxer. He was the producer. And so, you know, when I stayed there, um, I learned a lot more about, you know, sort of everything that had happened with the the rubber boom. And, and so the people along the river have been experiencing incursions on their way of life for, you know, ever since Oriana went down the river, but it's just taken different forms. Of course, now, you know, it's in the form of, of, uh, 
hydroelectric dams and cattle uh, agriculture and all sorts of uh, petroleum companies trying to build roads through areas. So, but it's true that um, when Oriano continued down the river, um, you know, he, once he got about, I'd say midway down and he started to reach um, these boundaries of places that are called the, uh, the people were called the Omagua and then later the Machipara And, you know, they were starting to attack uh, with vigor and shooting, you know, arrows with um, the most one of the most striking images I have is they they learned the hard way that these people had figured out how to use um, particular frogs and extract this poison from the frogs and uh, coat the tips of their their spears, um, their their darts and their arrows with this poison from the frogs. And when it struck some of Oriana's men, their, their legs would become necrotic and um, blowed up to like twice their size. And then they would go into this paralytic seizure and die. And so, you know, they, they had to deal with the fact that it was unclear who was going to be Um, peaceful and who was not. And so they had to stay away from the shores and sort of assess the situation, determine how the people they were encountering um, were behaving and then decide. And sometimes they were just forced to go ashore because they needed food. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Buddy Levy, whose latest book is River of Darkness, Francisco Oriana, and the Deadly First Voyage Through the Amazon, published by Diversion Books. Mr. Levy is the author of seven books, including The uh, Labyrinth of Ice, which won the Banff Adventure Travel Award, and a bestseller, Conquistador. Uh, and he is the... Uh, He is the co-host of History Channel's hit docuseries, Brad Meltzer's Decoded, also an on-camera expert on History Channel's The Frontiersman, uh, with executive producer Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, (laughs) There's a lot more, but I want to get back to the Amazon. Uh, You write about the present-day threats to the Amazon basin from deforestation caused by slashing and burning of trees for cattle raising, soy farms, palm oil, legal and illegal logging, road building, mining, big oil, hydroelectric dams, ecotourism, the encroachment of indig- on indigenous people, bulldozing for towns and, and so-called colonization projects, and, and climate change is having a devastating effect on the area. Yeah, I mean, that list, Leonard, is really heartbreaking when you hear it like that. And um, I I guess one of the reasons that I wanted to write a new introduction to the book, because like I said at the beginning, when I when I visited the Amazon and and I traveled through this remarkable place called the Yasuni National Park, um, we were in these uh, small dugout canoes and, you know, you're moving slowly scarlet macaws are flying overhead and i I saw the like got to see uh freshwater pink dolphins swimming along and our my guide this gentleman um named jose shingangu he he pointed out that um as we were moving through you could see some roads and you could see some pipeline and he told me that um 
you know, Venezuela had some claims to some of the um, oil rights that are underneath this place, which is one of the most biodiverse places in the world. Isn't oil mining a big problem there right now? Well, yeah, I mean, it is. And and the Ecuadorians, at least at the top end there, have, have done a decent job over the years of keeping the drilling from occurring. Um, but in the end, you know, I, the, the pressure, the monetary pressures are becoming um, a bit too much. And so while it, at last I checked, I talked to m- uh, my friend um, Jose and also did research about what's going on there. And there are some new roads that are really concerning um, that show that they may be starting to drill. Um, but like you said, I mean, that that those are, all, you know, that when you add up all of the uh, affronts and the assaults taken as a whole, um, it's really tragic. And I think uh, part of what um, I, my, you know, in the book, I include a pretty extensive list of of ways to help because um, there are there are all sorts of organizations that are trying to get the word out um, because the Amazon, it's so vast. It can seem like this place that's just so far removed um, that you don't think about. But the implications of of the deforestation, um, they're having some a kind of um this feedback loop where it's creating more savanna, then it's getting drier. Um, you know, the the ice caps on the volcanoes and, and uh, the glaciers is receding just as it is in the Arctic. And so that's it's one of those things. Change? Yeah, yeah. And not only because of climate change, but also um, if it continues, it's going to um further climate change by raising temperatures um, in the region um, in, a, in, in a just kind of a, a tragic loop. So um, I just wanted the introduction to kind of raise the alarm in, in the way that I could to suggest that, you know, we need to be thinking about this place because it's one of a kind, really. I mean, there's nothing else like it. Well, hasn't the Amazon been called Earth's lungs But since 1978, haven't nearly half a million square miles of Amazon rainforest been destroyed? That's an area about the size of Texas and California combined. Right. And if you think about all of those those trees and, and, uh, you know, um, a lot of times the big corporations uh, end up just having to, you know, essentially they're, they're too big to fail. And there's a lot of corruption um, that goes on in the governments where if they're getting these giant contracts, um, you know, they're going to they're going to take them. Um, and so it's a huge problem. And, and I, I did a show not so long ago about how everything has accelerated since Bolsonaro came to power in Brazil. Yeah, it's true. And I and the woman um, that runs the Casa Fitzcarraldo, who I spoke with, because I, I stayed at that place. And it's an amazing, um, you know, it's amazing. Like um, it has a tree house that's, you know, five stories high and she's been paying close attention to it. And um, a lot of the, the regular um, populace are not too pleased with the uh, you know the direction of the government and and the corruption that's going on. And there's a sense of um, futility, too, um, about it. And well, th- that's why I brought up the ecotourism bit, because um, I'm not sure if you've heard of ayahuasca, the um, the bark that is used for hallucinogenic 
uh, vision quests. <laughs> but um, there's a there's a big eco tourist trade that goes on out of Iquitos and in other parts of the Amazon where lots of um, affluent new age um a lot of Americans come there to try to experience these um, ayahuasca hallucinogenic vision quests. Um, but, you know, again, it's just there's an there's just a constant influx of um, of people coming for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, the pressures are becoming too great for the region to bear. What about the so-called uncontacted tribes? Most of the approximately 100 so-called uncontacted tribes of people left on Earth live in the Amazon rainforest. Are they totally uncontacted? How do they, uh, how do they avoid being contacted? Wow, that's a great point. And that's actually what I wanted to mention. I, I forgot to say when I, when I finished my trip in uh, 08 and I got to the Casa Fitzgeraldo, it was the first time I had um, the internet connectivity for many weeks. And one of the first things I saw was this um, international news story about uh, near the border of Brazil and Peru, there were these drone shots of these painted orange people by their huts um, holding spears and looking up at the sky. And I think there were also some helicopters hovering over them. And that was back in 08. And, and their their message was pretty clear, like, leave us alone. Um, and so there are a number of, uh, like you say, a, a number of tribes um, living in different areas that their only contact has been unwanted. So they're able to subsist in the way, essentially in the way that um, the people that Oriana uh, encountered um, in 1541 and two, um, you know, by living through off the forest, eating monkeys, eating fish, raising fish. Um, and, and many of them have literally never been contacted physically by um, the outside world, uh, except for an occasional, you know, really nosy journalist who will pop in or because of, um, how the globe is now, uh, you know, there are, there are airplanes flying over, taking pictures, sometimes drones flying over, taking pictures. And essentially they live in very small, um, community villages, uh, 20 to 30 people, and are able to sustain themselves, and they just want to be left alone. But haven't um, they been forced, in some cases, to move because of the encroachment of uh, policies that have been created by Bolsonaro? Well, yeah, that's that's true, and so, and they, you know, they may um, certainly they're hearing the rumblings of heavy machinery bulldozing um, forest stands, and they may have to move up or downstream, but depending on where it's happening. Um, but they're, you know, they're quite, they're quite mobile and adept at, um, at living like this. But I think also what you're talking about is that there have been, um, with the development of some of these massive hydroelectric dams, mm -hmm. um, there have been entire cities, I mean, uh, 50,000 people and more who've been forced to leave because of the building of the hydroelectric dams uh, and relocate, you know, nearby and be paid, bought off. And it's um, it's it's terrible. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been uh, a great pleasure talking with you. 
Ah, the pleasure's been all mine, Leonard. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've been talking with Buddy Levy, whose latest book is River of Darkness, Francisco Oriana and the Deadly First Voyage Through the Amazon. It is published by Diversion Books. Uh, you have another a book in the works? I do. I actually have a, a second art. You mentioned Labyrinth of Ice, but I have a, a second Arctic book coming out in December called Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carluck. And it's about the 1913 uh, Canadian Arctic Expedition. Okay, I look um, forward to speaking to you about that when it comes out. Thanks again. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. And we hope that you'll do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information that you really don't get anywhere else. I'm sure that much of what you heard today was new to you. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, River of Darkness, Francisco Oriana, and the Deadly First Voyage Through the Amazon uh, by Buddy Levy. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during this Women's History Month, we are offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and the WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, Again, the number, 212-209-2950. Go online at Give2WBAI to play your part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York Radio Dollars, 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when one of our favorite regulars, nurseryman and environmentalist Pete Morosky, will be taking your calls on gardening and related matters. We'll see you then. <laughs>